welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a long time, long time friend. He's a New York City native, plays the keyboard, sings, songwriter, producer, Broadway, been on stage with some of the great, great iconic legends of American music across genres. Dave Keys, I'm just thrilled to get a chance to have you on Great Minds. Matt, great to talk to you. Boy, oh boy. We've got a, we've got plenty to cover, I'm sure. Between oh, I, 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 I think we do. So Dave, you and I met <laughs> through friends at a wonderful place and it was the original. It was. Let's talk about the Lone Star Cafe and what that place meant to not only the New York music scene, but the American music scene and the world music scene. Sure. Lone Star, very special place. Sure. Well, the Lone Star was, uh, I mean, there was, I, I don't remember the exact year that we met, Matt, but I would say 80. May, I may, may, may be early on this, but 82, 80. I think the first time I played at the Lone Star was 81. Let's put right. it that way. Right. And the great thing about the Lone Star, which was at 13th Street and 5th Avenue, for those of you who don't know, it was originally a Schraft's uh, restaurant and uh, kind of two leveled. And it was very short in width, but very long. Uh, uh, so it was, a, it, but the bar was literally five feet from the stage. If you sat at the bar, um, I mean, you walked into place and, and the stage was right there. And, and the great thing about the Lone Star was that they had all, I mean, it started out as a country Western place in the, uh, probably 76 or 77, but over time, uh, they had blues, they had, they had rock and roll. It was, it was. A, a classic melting pot. I mean, James Brown used to play there with his 15 piece band and it was a small stage, you know? So you just had these, but the beauty of the place was that you had hillbillies and you had New York people and you had people that love country music, people that just came in off the streets, people just came in out of town. It was, uh, you could be next to anybody and have no idea who they were and have a great conversation with them. Yeah, it was a truly special place. I think one of the last shows I saw there right before he died was Clifton Chenier. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And uh, I think we saw Buckwheat uh, Zydeco sure. there also. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You walked in, the stage is right there. Yep. The bar is five feet from the stage. <laughs> uh, it's sort of, uh, it's an old joke. I can't remember. It's an old like Catskills joke. You know, nobody had a good seat. <laughs> you know, but the place was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So you're on stage there at, at the Lone Star, and there's a whole other network of clubs. Some names still around. Uh, I saw the Bitter End, something recently that's coming up. Yeah. You know, there's still some great rooms. But what were some of the other great rooms? Well, there was a circuit at that time. I mean, at that moment in time, I mean, uh, Urban Cowboy came out, I think, in 60, 70, late 70s, 76, 77. And there were all these country. Suddenly, there started being country music had this you know, a boom. And so there were a lot of country music clubs that I played at. There was a place called City Limits uh, on uh, 7th Avenue and 10th Street, which was a great room. 
was the Lone Star. There was Tramps. I mean, there were several tramps. There was the the first tramps, I think, was on 15th Street, which yeah. was had the room in back. Yeah. And yeah. then they moved up to 22nd. Uh, that that was a much bigger room. That came later. The bottom line was a great room, great music room. And they were really music rooms. You know, people went for the music. It was, um, you know, the, the bottom line was a great room. It was a great place to play. I played there a lot with uh, Buster Poindexter, David Johansson. I did a two-year, they call them now residencies, but they didn't call them residencies back then. It was just, you did a gig every Tuesday. We did uh, Darlene Love down there. two years um you know there was there was just a a lot a lot of music in the city yeah. and you mentioned darlene uh who we had on great minds last year it was such a joy to talk to her yeah. and you mentioned the bottom line and I, I think one of the things that bonded us together early in our friendship was that 25th anniversary show of the phil specter christmas record uh -huh, sure at, at the bottom line that darlene was in and ronnie specter who right. i also know You've played with many, many times. I still do, yeah, actually. I've, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been with Ronnie for about 10 years uh, more recently. And, um, you know, obviously we, we haven't done anything in, a, in about a uh, year, over a year. I mean, we, we went to England for a tour in uh, Christmas of 2019. Okay. And, okay. and uh, we did a cruise actually in two, in January of 2020. And then, you know. Right. All right. But you'll get back out there. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Been, I talked to her last week, actually. Fantastic. So Dave, you're a guy who's sort of done everything, played with everyone, you know, always figured it, always figured it out, always figured out a way to stay busy, you know, creating your own solo records. And I want to talk about your latest there. Uh, and I know you're doing a lot of work now with Papa Chubby, um, but you've been on stage with people that, you know, you can only dream about. Talk well, about yeah, sure. some of those people and, you know, the names that come to my mind immediately, you know, as our crack great mind staff has researched the keys archives <laughs> are uh, times you spent with Art Neville uh -huh. and times you spent with Bo Diddley. Sure. But take us anywhere you want to go. The floor is yours. Well, I think, yeah, you know, for me, the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll is is Bo, uh, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee. And Bo, I worked with uh, for about seven or eight years in the 90s. And uh, he was just a great guy. You know, he was like a little kid. He had a great, uh, you know, like the the stuff he would do with electronics. He had a rhythm box built into his guitar. You know, he was, he just was a joyful soul. He just, you know, boom, 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 boom. That was both.
You know, he just he just loved to to beat things and and um, you know going to Japan with him was uh, we went on a tour with uh, Bo and uh, Junior Wells was on the tour also and you know we were taking bullet trains around and Bo you know this I'll tell you a quick story about Bo and and this kind of crystallizes what Bo was like for me we were on the uh, waiting for a bullet train on the in one of the stations there and Bo took out his guitar and um, he turned on his rhythm box and he just started playing right on the station, you know, and there was about within 60 seconds, there were 50 Japanese kids, students that were clustered around him and just going crazy, you know, but Bo was just, a, he was a good guy. You know, and, and he was a real blues man, too. I think people don't give him enough credit for that. They think rock and roll. But Bo was, you know, he was as blues as it gets, you know, and and, and working with him was uh, a treat. He was a good, you know, sometimes you work with people that you idolize and uh, and the music is fun. But the the behind the scenes is a little disappointing with Bo was just fun. He was just great to hang out with. You know, that's so good to hear. Now, let's stay here for a second. You talk about Bo as a, as a true blues man, certainly Junior Wells, a true blues man. Yes, sure. the leading practitioner who's still out there today is Buddy Guy. Absolutely. And we I, I know at one point we almost uh, did a show with Buddy. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I, I, I know we, we uh, we'll get there. We're, gonna, we're not going to give up till we get that done. <laughs> so uh, Buddy is really, you know, the true last man standing, I think. So. Do you worry about the future of the blues? Such a seminal part of American music. Really, you know, the whole British invasion is all built on American blues. Yeah. Do you worry about the future of the blues, Dave? Well, the blues will, you know, music cannot stand still. It, it's got to be moving. You know, what is difficult for the blues um, is that the cultural uh, influences that created the blues, which was this kind of, or, or not, I'm simplifying things, but you know, when, when everybody came up from the deep south and they moved to the north to work uh, in the late 40s and the 50s, you had this incredible explosion of, of blues and electric blues. And um, so, the cultural situation has changed. Uh, you know, now there's more hip hop. Uh, is more is it's a blues in a certain way, but it's totally different. You know, so for the for the blues that we know it as it is now, um, I think it will continue. You know, unfortunately, I think the audience is, is getting smaller for it as, as time goes on and as the audience get, gets older. Um, you know, but, you know, there's some, some young guys. Uh, uh, Kingfish Ingram is a wonderful, wonderful guitar player uh, from uh, Alabama or Mississippi who is making a big mark on the blues scene. Uh, you know, there's 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 different guys that will carry it forward, but it's 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 changed. Yeah, I feel so lucky that I was able to see like people like Albert Collins while Absolutely. he was alive, and 
you know, I saw a Buddy Guy and Junior Wells acoustic reunion yeah. at Buddy Guy's club in yeah. Chicago. And that yeah. was, uh, you know, you, you never forget a night like that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, you know, I used to think back in the 80s, well, I saw, I wish I had seen these guys 20 years ago. You know, I did see Muddy Waters in the 70s and, um, and, you know, I saw Buddy and, and other people, you know, a lot of guys. And I saw a lot of people at the Lone Star Cafe by opening up for them. And, right. and meeting a lot of guys, Albert King, Albert Collins, all the Alberts, and um, you know, so have all that experience. And I remember thinking, boy, I wish I had seen these guys 20 years ago. And now, you know, I just feel so fortunate to have seen them at all because yeah. you know, once these guys are gone, they're gone. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's go back to the Lone Star. Sure. It's, a it's a tiny place. Yeah, yeah. Backstage is sort of non-existent. There's well, some were, some semblance of a green room. It was a green room upstairs. Yeah, third floor. Must have been a lot of crazy traffic. Sure was. In and out of that green room. Take yep. us back. And when you reflect on that time of your life in that green room, <laughs> what, co what comes to mind? <laughs> what comes to mind? Couple stories. So first of all, that green room on the third floor, there was a door that opened out onto the roof where the iguana was. And there was this massive... At some point after the club opened, they came in possession of this massive iguana that was, I don't know how big, I mean, a, a you know, it wasn't a real iguana, obviously, but it was a, like a, uh, I don't know what it was made out of, paper mache or something, well, made out of something that was pretty durable. Well, they put it on the roof outside, so clearly it was, it was durable, whatever right, it was. Right. Yeah. And I don't know how big this thing was, but it had to be, you know, 75 feet from one end to the other. It was big because you could see it, you know. And um, so the roof, you know, there were so many things that went on underneath that iguana that we probably won't get into. But uh, one memorable story was playing, we were opening up for Wilson Pickett one night and any gig with Pickett was always an adventure because uh, he was, a, he was a, you know, a character. And his band was made up of characters too. They were all characters, great characters, great players. But, um, you know, we got locked in the dressing room somehow. And Wilson, Wilson, <laughs> Wilson, I remember Wilson coming upstairs and he, he tried to get in the dressing room. <laughs> and we said, we're locked in, man, we're locked in. We can't get out. And he said, oh yeah. <laughs> and then he just took off and we never saw him <laughs> we, we never got out, we didn't get out of there for another 20 minutes. But, um, you know, it was, I mean, hanging out with Art Neville, there's a picture I have on my website, you know, just hanging out with those guys afterwards. I mean, it, it was such a, um, it was just a very open club, you know, it was a very open scene and everybody was, you know, there, there was security, there was a guy at the front door and that was it, you know, and it, it just was a different time. And, and if you wanted to go up to the upstairs area, you could. You know, it wasn't like there was a massive, you didn't need a pass or anything. You just went, you know. Yeah. So the mingling with the bands was 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 pretty cool. Yeah, it was a different time. We used to go to SOBs a lot. Yeah, great room also. And, and 
you know, it was a lot of great reggae acts used to play yeah. that we used to see. Yeah. And you could just go downstairs and the yeah. green room was downstairs yeah. right. and right. you'd walk right in and there was Yellow Man or there yeah. was, yeah. you know, yeah. David Lindley with El Rayo X and, and Blue yeah. Rhythm, my, my beloved Blue Rhythm friends from Kansas City and Chicago. Yeah. So amazing. I mean, uh, like, like the Vanguard, you know, was another example of a place because in order to get to the, the bathroom at the Vanguard, you had to walk through the kitchen sort of, which was the, was where the, the dressing room, where everybody, where the players hung out, you know? So it was, yeah. that was, you know, that stuff doesn't exist now. And Dave, you also got to play with some of the real icons back to the blues, uh, Pine Top Perkins, Hubert Sumlin. These are the real giants, you know, who stood alongside, you know, the, 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 the you know, Robert Johnson, Elmore James, you know, you, sure. you know, all the different places you can go, you know, better than I, yeah. that must've been incredible for you as a young musician. It was great. You know, I, I, uh, I went to this festival in Switzerland, in Lugano, Switzerland in 93. Uh, I was playing with, um, uh, I was playing with a friend of mine and uh, uh, the next year, the promoter, me and the promoter hit it off. And he said to me, Dave, you have an act that you'd like to bring back. And so I actually brought an eight piece band back. That was my band. Um, and, and then the next year he said, you know, can you get this guy Sleepy Labeef? Have you ever, are you, you know him? And Sleepy was a rockabilly guy who I had worked with in college when I got out of college. How much I love that I want to How much I love that I want to mind A sweeter love I'll never find And I want to with me all the time What would I give? So I brought Sleepy over. And then for the next 20 years, I was basically able to bring over an artist each year. And over a period of time, I brought over people like Eddie Kirkland, Eddie Clearwater, um, uh, Gino Delafosse, you know, some Cajun guys, um, you know, Tracy Nelson. Uh, I can never remember these. Ronnie Brooks, Ron, Ronnie Baker Brooks, uh, Wayne Baker Brooks, you know, was each year I got to bring over somebody. And it was a really cool way to play with some of the legendary cats. And, um, you know, those are the experiences that, that uh, you know, you really remember. I mean, I played with Chuck Berry. We did three nights at the Lone Star, which was unbelievable. Um, you know, other, other stuff in Europe, you know, with Bo and Chuck Berry, tours like that, you know, the Ronnie Spector stuff. I mean, those are, that's all, that's, this, you know, pretty special stuff to me. No, amazing stuff. And we had Marshall Chess on uh, yeah. the podcast. Uh -huh. I love talking to him. Yeah. And he talked about Chuck a lot. He was on the road. His father put him on the road with Chuck when he was a yeah. very young That's guy, right. right when Chuck got out of prison. Yeah. yeah. And he said that, you know, he felt that Chuck didn't play his career right, that he never really had a band. Yeah. You know, I, that he would just pick up. Oh, it's a short, great book. Yeah. Chuck Berry autobiography, which I just read a couple of weeks ago. And, and, you know, Chuck gets into that in the book because he was, you know, Johnny Johnson, great piano player. Johnny invited Chuck into Johnny's band. That's how they hooked up. And it was him and a, a bass player and a drummer. And so, and Chuck, as he was starting to get famous, um, 
you know, Johnny liked a cocktail apparently, and and so did the other guys. And and Chuck goes into it in the in the book where he says, you know, I just, I, I it was easier for me. Everybody knew my songs wherever I went, so you know, I just decided that I was going to save money and I was not going to have to deal with all the stuff of having other guys in the band and just travel by myself. It was a conscious decision that he made. So, but I appreciate Marshall saying that for sure. Yeah, no, really yeah, interesting. I'm going to have to read that book. Um, so you also mentioned earlier, David Johansson and Buster Poindexter, you know, long, long affiliation. Absolutely. Yeah. I met David, uh, when David started doing uh, Buster, um, I guess it was probably late 80s or so, uh, it was a guy named Joe D'Elia, who was sort of his, was very involved in, in the whole production and the making of that record, Hot, 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 and all that stuff. And so Joe was doing the gig, and then Charlie Giordano, who's now playing with, with Springsteen, um, started doing the gigs. And I was sort of the sub at that point. I started getting calls. And uh, and then Joe dropped out, and then Charlie got the call from Bruce. And so then I started doing David's uh, gig. And, and we were doing David, uh, we were doing Buster Poindexter at that time. And then, so we did that for a while. I don't know, five, six, seven years. He was doing, again, a residency at the bottom line. We did sure. every Tuesday, whatever it was, for a long time, for maybe three years. I don't know what it was. But then um, the guy up at uh, Manny's Car Wash, a uh, guy named Buddy Fox, who was kind of an American, uh, a, a New York institution as a booking guy, real character, wonderful guy. He just turned 90 the other day. I talked to him, he now lives in Hawaii. But he uh, he booked Manny's Car Wash. He originally, I met Buddy, he was the manager at the Lone Star. And then uh, he went up to Manny's Car Wash and he said, can you get Joe Hanson? You know, can you, I gotta get Joe Hanson in here. So I said, okay, well, let's do a, uh, you know, we'll, and, and David wasn't doing his doll stuff at that point. He was just doing the Buster Poindexter stuff. So there was a benefit of some kind is what started it. So he said, get your answers. I said, oh, because I called David up and he said, I said, let's do some of the old stuff. And he was into it. So he started doing some of the doll stuff. And then he ended up getting back, you know, to the doll stuff. So, but David, you know, David is um, a really singular, unique individual and just a wonderful uh character you know and I, I just happened to listen to his show on on Sirius the other night on Sirius radio I was driving home I was in the car for like three hours driving home from a gig in uh somewhere up in Connecticut and it's just the the breadth of the music that he's into from Latin Latin folklorico stuff to the old rock and roll to the blues and that's David you know he's just an amazing guy that was a, it's a great experience working with it. Fantastic. And I have a very vivid memory also, Dave, of seeing you on Broadway 
right. and the work that you did with Smokey Joe's Cafe, which right. was a big, big hit and just a great, great show. You say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Let's talk about that. Sure. I mean, that, but it's, you know, I've always had a very open mind about what, uh, you know, music and gigs are about. You know, if someone asked me to, it's just, I'm just interested in different stuff and different styles. And I've never really been pigeonholed and stuff. You know, I'm a blues man deep down, but the blues is a big, you know, some deep roots that go all kinds of places. So I actually, uh, I was playing at the bottom line with Darlene one night and uh, a gentleman named John Miller, who is what's called a musical contractor. He puts bands together for shows. And uh, he said, you know, we just met and he heard me play and he knew I could read and he knew I could, uh, you know, cover a lot of territory, but I was basically a rock and roll blues guy. So a couple of years later, he called me out of the blue and said, Libra and Stolen is doing uh, a workshop for something would you be interested i said sure and i remember i drove i drove into the city every day for about two weeks in february and the weather was it was like the snowiest two weeks that i can ever remember and there was little or no money but it was a great experience and i hit it off with mike and jerry and um then about six months later they did another reading what they call you know they just kind of try and put something they have a concept of what they want to do and they put something on its feet with actors and actresses singing and maybe reading some lines. And uh, they just kept calling me. And after about two years, we went out to um, Chicago and we did a, uh, you know, a press, we did the show for, I think uh, two and a half months. And then we went out to LA for three months. And then we, uh, we came back to, we hit Broadway. And uh, that was, I think, March of 94. And um, when we opened, um, the, the critics were less than kind, but people loved the show. They really loved the show. And um, it was a, what's called a jukebox musical. It was really the first one, which was basically all music and very little story, although there was sort of a creative arc to it. And I was uh, what's called the associate conductor on that show, which means there's the, conduct, there's the musical director and the conductor. And then the associate conductor kind of helps the conductor and fills in for the conductor when the conductor's not there. So there were two keyboard players. The conductor was one keyboard player and I was played the other keyboard. And uh, so I ended up, you know, conducting probably 800 nights on Broadway, you know, cause the conductor was constantly going in and out of town. Wonderful, wonderful man named Louis St. Louis who recently passed. But uh, it was just a great experience for me playing great music every night with a great band and a great cast. Amazing. Talk about, David, just as you can take us sort of inside the green room at the Lone Star, a place few people have been, you can also take us into the orchestra pit of a Broadway theater. Sure. And what's that like, that experience like, and eight shows a week, 
you know, it's two, three hours, but you're there before you're there afterwards. You've got to take care of yourself a certain way. Um, Talk about that experience and take us behind the Broadway curtain. Well, it's a grind. Um, You know, it's a, uh, you know, let's start when you're in the rehearsal phase, you know, when you're working technically from 10 to six, but you know, you're working 10 to six with the actors and then you would go home at night and write charts for the next six hours, you know, or however, even longer, you know, it is incredible. Uh, and there, there's really no time off. I mean, you're working six days a week for that as you are when you're doing an eight show week, but uh, it's a ridiculous amount of work until the show actually gets on its feet. And then once the show is on its feet and you've opened or you've started previews even, uh, you know, I mean, the, the period, the preview period and the period where you're in what's called teching is basically, um, you know, they're 12, 14 hour days, six days a week. It's incredibly grueling. And then you open and you, uh, you're doing eight shows a week, you know, which is a grind, but the band was, you know, which, and every show is different. You know, I've always done shows that uh, I'm not like a Les Mis kind of guy. Uh, I'm not going to get called for those shows. Though they're, they're fantastic shows. But I'm a guy that gets called for the R&B stuff. You know, I subbed on Hairspray a lot. Um, I subbed on, Earth, I mean, it's sub, I, I played on the Earth, Wind & Fire show called Hot Feet. Um Lennon, Urban Cowboys, stuff like that, which were nowhere near as long running. Hairspray ran a long time, and that was a great, that was a fun show to play. But Smokies, it's, uh, you know, 50s, early 60s R&B. You know, you can't, it doesn't get better than that. We had a great band. It was challenging for me. It was fun. You know, as long as the band is really grooving, you can, at least my, um, I can put up with a lot of other, stuff you know there are a lot of politics there is a lot of drama because it's the theater you know actors and actresses have drama that's the essence of who they are you know they're these right. are the people that want to get on a stage and say look at me you know right. that's, that's right. what so right. you know that works in different ways sometimes but it was really cool they were great people and and you put up with the drama and and you get used to it and you deal with it and you play the music every night which is great great stuff so you talked about miller as a guy who put together you know bands for broadway you're a guy that puts together bands that that's how we met Sure. When I called the then booking agent at the Lone Star, my old buddy, Mark Krantz, <laughs> and I said, I'm getting married. I have no say in anything but the band. I said, my in-laws were actually wonderful. And my wife, Isla, who you know, still wonderful. Absolutely. Um, I, I just claimed um, the band early. And right. I knew. And Mark said, talk to Dave Keyes. He'll put a band together. Right. And, and that's how we met. I remember Stan and yeah. all right. the guys you put together. But you've been doing that your whole life. Talk about that part of Dave Key's music world where you get a call and it could be from, you know, you know, a huge musical, you know, artist of the past or present, uh, or it could be from, you know, somebody through somebody through somebody who needs a band for something. Sure. Sure. Well, um, I know a wide variety of people. Uh, 
you know, Stan Bronstein, just, you know, Stan played with Elephant's Memory, played with John Lennon, and he had a great swing band. And he said to me, Davey, and he was, a, he was, he was a Brooklyn guy, you know, and, and a tough, you know, just a, a tough guy and a great, great player, you know, real old style, you know, back in the, in those days, a real old style kind of guy. And he just said, Davey, doesn't matter what kind of gig you're doing, as long as you're playing with good players, good cats, you're gonna, it's gonna go good. And, and that's was sort of my credo all along. And, um, you know, for your wedding, for example, um, you know, you put together a band and the bands would be flexible because when you're playing a wedding, you know, different people have different needs. You know, you had, you were easy to play for because you had, we had similar musical tastes, you know, and I had to play stuff for your in-laws, you know, but we played the swing stuff. So you get guys that can play swing, you get guys that can play uh, R&B, Motown stuff at that time. And, um, and, you, and you know, as a band leader, <clears throat> and this is something that John Miller is great at, and, um, you know, there's different ways that guys play. Some guys play behind the beat. Some guys play right on the beat. Some guys push the beat. So within the context of a band, you have to, you want guys that are going to uh, complement each other. You know, you don't want one guy all the way behind and one guy all the way ahead. So you get guys that you know will groove together and guys that can listen and then guys that are simpatico. And that's, you know, what putting a band together is like for me. And it continues to this day. Fantastic stuff. So uh, along that path, you're putting your own bands together, you're recording music, right. you're winning Blues Foundation and International blues competition i mean that's heady company that was great yeah. you really not only yourself but you surround yourself with just incredible players and you've talked about this on the broadway stage and and stories of stan but you know playing with great players is really what fuels a lot of this it uh, it's really important you know i've always been a, a big believer in getting guys that are better than you to play with you you know, I, I don't I don't need to to for people to come and go, oh, this guy's great. Uh, you know, I want people to say the band is great. And, um, you know, when you do that, it serves several purposes. First of all, the band will sound great. You get really good players. and But it also will propel me. It'll force me to raise my game, you know, to make me be a better player. Have guys, you know, kick me in the fanny and 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 learn. You know, so, um, you know, Stan was a great mentor for me. I just, he taught me so much. He exposed me to, you know, listen to this, Damien, listen to the way this guy plays, stuff like that. And and playing with people like that always, you know, push you forward. So it's really important. Right. And then, Dave, we reunited a couple of years ago in Massachusetts <laughs> when you were involved in a great, great uh, musical um, about the life of Alan Freed. Right. Uh, and I, I'd love to talk about that and talk a little about Alan Freed. That's another name that, sure. you know, if guys like you and me don't talk about him, we'll be lost in history. It's true. Uh, Alan Freed was really the first guy to play uh, uh, black music on uh, white radios for white audiences. 
um, you know, it, it, um, he was in Akron, Ohio, where he had his first, he first started doing it. I believe he was 50 or 51, somewhere around there. Uh, maybe a little earlier, but um, he was a real pioneer in, in music having no color. You know, at that time there was, you know, what they call race records and then the pop charts. And um, Alan just played what he wanted to, you know, and, and then he came to WINS uh, in New York and uh, he did the same thing, you know, and he was a, um, a, a bit of a, a flawed character in the sense that um, he drank a lot. He got involved, you know, he got very involved with the, the mafia at that time had a, a, was very involved in the music business and he uh, put himself in, into some very compromised positions um, that, that were part of his downfall really. And he ended up taking the fall uh, uh, for payola, you know, which was uh, at that time, people taking money to play records. And, and to Alan, that was, you know, he was a consultant and, and, but, you know, whereas him and Dick Clark, both were involved in the situations, you know, Dick Clark was able to avoid the persecution that was, you know, that was involved with the FBI and the FBI was on, uh, was all over Alan Freed and, and made his life miserable. And, and Alan didn't help, uh, his own cause, unfortunately, but, and he died, you know, tragically very young at 42, but he, he really exposed uh, white audiences to R&B, you know, and, and it was, uh, it was a seismic change. It was, it was, he, he was put on these rock and roll extravaganzas where you would have, you know, Chuck Berry and uh, Jackie Wilson and Jerry Lee and Laverne Baker and Ruth Brown and all these all these different artists, black and white, all mixed together, and uh, it was a big it was a life changer. Really, it was a life changer for the music business. And so we did this. I was an, I'm the music director for this uh, a show that a friend of mine wrote, a guy named Gary Cupper and uh, Rose Caiola, who's the producer. And, um, you know, we've been working on this probably, I've been involved probably five or six years, but we uh, did do a, a, a run up at the Colonial Theater in Pittsfield. It was great to have you up there, Matt, on opening night, I might add. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we had some good reviews and we were supposed to be off Broadway uh, last uh, summer in the city. But obviously everything's been postponed. So I think what we're doing now is uh, probably uh, doing something in March of next year, off Broadway somewhere in New York. So we, it's called, uh, well, it was called Rock and Roll Man. I'm not sure what it's gonna be called if we're changing the name or not, but it's a great story about Alan Freed. Just uh, an amazingly influential and life-changing uh, disc jockey and personality. Yeah, and, oh. and and I thought the show was great, David. It really tells his story, but it's also, you know, similarly in some ways to Smokey Joe's, there's an incredible amount of music in the show. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, you know, the music is the show. I mean, that's what, the, you know, the music, I mean, Smokey Joe's didn't really have any spoken lines, but, you know, with that, with the Freed's uh, musical, it's, 
you know, you really get a feel for his life story, which is a, a tragic one, but you know, we we reap the benefits of of what he went through. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coupe de ville. A Cadillac rolling on an open road, nothing out to run my PA4. A Cadillac doing about nine to five, moves bumper to bumper, rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the things you So, Dave, I'd love to get your perspective on on something that we've talked about quite a bit. And you have this very odd juxtaposition in America now where race has never been more prominent in the conversation, certainly in my lifetime, um, than it is today and and polarizing. And, you know, uh, we've not seen anything like this in our lifetimes that I know of. You may remember more than I can from the 60s but uh, incredible times we're living through right now. Music in so many ways um, has been led by black artists and black culture right. and, uh, and audiences adoring white audiences. And you go back to you know, the 50s and 60s and these incredible tours with Wilson Pickett, who you mentioned and Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and the pop staples and the staple singers and on and on. And they would get play in front of three, 4,000 audiences, mostly white. And then they would have to stay in, you know, the one hotel that would allow black people. And maybe there was a room for them and maybe there wasn't. They would get harassed by the cops. And yet white audiences love them. Right. And they were adored. Right. Um, and as we move to today, so much of American culture is defined by black artists and black leaders. Music was the first frontier that in a real meaningful way, and I guess you could argue a little bit for sports and you know, folks like Jackie Robinson, certainly, and Larry Doby, but music broke so much ground in terms of uniting blacks and whites right. on stage in the same band, all working together. Yeah. And when we had Steve Cropper on, he talked about Booker T and the MGs, who I know you've played with also. And he said, hey, we were too black, too white, but none of us saw color. You know, Booker was a great keyboard player. Al was a great drummer. Duck was a great bass player. Talk about what you've seen growing up on stage surrounded by black and white artists. And what do you think about what's going on in this country now? And how do we get to a saner place? I know that's sort of a loaded question, but... (laughs) But you have the benefit of real perspective, you know, from all those years on stage with people of all colors and races and creeds. Right. Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's you know, we're at a point right now where um, what's fortunate is that things, the conversation has accelerated to a point uh, that I don't think it's been at uh, before um, in, the, in, in the sense that there is the opportunity to bring about lasting change. Um, the, 
you know, as a musician, um, I, I, you know, I look at things like Steve Cropper, you know, I'm, I'm colorblind. I, it doesn't, I don't think about it. Uh, I've been in situations, you know, where I'm the only white guy in the room. And, um, and that happens so often to, to black people, I think. And, and to, to experience that from the other side. But it, to me, it was just, okay, whatever, you know, I, I didn't really, it's, it's an, it's a, but I also, uh, you know, I'm, what amazes me is that when you go to a place like Memphis, which I usually go to every year for the Blues Music Awards, Memphis is one of the places where the music uh, totally joined between black and white. You know, there was Elvis, there was, you know, what happened was happening at Stax. Uh, and it, it just, Memphis to me was always a, um, an incredible place to see how well things could work and how badly things get messed up. You know, and, and you go, you know, with Martin Luther King being assassinated there, um, you know, but you go to the Civil Rights Museum there, as I have many times, and I, I, I always come out of there with uh, tears in my eyes because it is so astounding to me that 60 years later from, uh, you know, the Selma protests and Rosa Parks, we are still, still uh, battling these these issues of, of racial equality. And from a musical standpoint, it's great to go to a place where uh, it doesn't matter if it's a white act or it's a black act, it's a music act, and you see a, a split audience. You know, Ray Charles for me was, um, was an incredible example of somebody who started out doing R&B and then, you know, flipped and, and, and went over to country and was an amazing artist selling country records to people, to white people, you know? So it's, there's so much possibility and potential and music has a way of breaking down the barriers. It always has. And that's one of the great things about being a musician. For me, when I went to China uh, in 2019, I was playing music. You know, we were there for three weeks. We did about uh, 11 shows. And we were, I didn't see Westerners for about 10 of those days. And they didn't speak English. I didn't speak Chinese, but I could get them to sing what I say with me. And so music has this power to uh, cross all boundaries. And I am constantly aware of that. And it's one of, it's something that I'm always trying to lead with, you know, to make, to bring people together. Uh, amazing. Um, and just such a, 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 an incredible journey that you've been on and still on. And I saw some dates that <laughs> you've got booked for the fall. Sure. Uh, you're starting to get out there. I know you're doing a lot of work with Papa Chubby. Yep. But I'd love to talk about what Dave Keys is doing 
in 21 and what we can look forward to in 2022? Sure. Well, uh, I've got a lot of Papa Chubby uh, gigs coming up until uh, probably through the end of September. Then uh, we may be doing a reading of uh, the free show, you know, a four week thing. I'm not, it's not set in stone yet. We'll see. And then there'll probably be some more chubby stuff uh, uh, later on in the year. And then next year, uh, I will definitely have a new record out, and which will be my seventh. And um, I'm going to be doing a lot more Dave Keys gigs next year. Right. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, looking forward to doing more of my own stuff. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll always be working with other people, too, because I enjoy doing it. But I'm looking to, to do more solo stuff and, um, uh, you know, kind of blues and boogie-woogie type things. Fantastic. Well, Dave, this was so much fun to get a chance to talk to you. You know, we've always managed to weave in and out of each other's lives. And I I hope we always will. Continue, Matt. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to chat. And uh, it's great to see you and continue. Good luck with everything that you're up to. What a chapel was for has a preacher taught, but none would recall what he said. There wasn't a dry eye. 